to make mention of of this room. If I've I've been in here before. I interviewed you mm-hmm. for Hebe several years ago. It looks like there are even more books in here. If that was at all possible than there were five years yeah, ago. Did you ever play Tetris? <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes feel I have this really large Tetris field that's like this room, and eventually, like I'll be Collier Brothers to, yeah. to death. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you can't. You know, I, you're 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 in, you're in Manhattan. You're in New York City. You're only allotted one personal library, as far as as far as I know. <laughs> well, personally, right? I have like two spaces. And okay, they're relatively large. Yeah. So, um, I nevertheless, it sure do fill up. I I'm 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 in the process of moving right now. I'm actually moving tomorrow. Um, I don't want to even attempt to compare my my book collection with yours, but um, this is always the 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 inner you know the debate that i have every single time i move are the books yeah like I, it's why i can never move it's not <laughs> allowed but in fact like Francois and i were talking about how when you die you tend to get a tombstone but i think what we need is like a few really large dumpsters yeah you know so they, oh they passed away and this is what they accomplished they gathered all this shit <laughs> They, they made some of it. <laughs> made some and accumulated yeah. others, and it's going to be really hard to get people to even want any of it because it's all books instead of electronic uh, nuggets of information. Yeah, although I did, I did, I saw something on, on online recently about you know there's several groups out there right now uh, attempting to salvage all of that digital information because a lot of the stuff that's being stored right now is a, a much shorter shelf life than any of us had thought. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Because yeah. yeah, if something goes wrong, it's all gone. If mm-hmm. a paper piece of paper gets ketchup on it, yeah, or whatever, get, even gets burned, some of the book might remain. That's that's likely true. And you do probably have to like change your uh, source material every few years. Because like I think I have documents written in WordPerfect that I mm. may never see again or mm-hmm. something. You know? Are you? I, I, I might I might have asked you this question last time too, but um, this is the other problem that I have is I don't. I mean I mean I'm 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 not I'm not an artist, uh, so I'm not necessarily looking for looking to the books for um, for inspiration for for source material. But I um, I don't find them, myself going back to them as often as as I think I I would like to or I should or at least you know given the fact that I'm in a small. Queen's apartment, and they're right there all the time. I should be, I should be rereading these things. Well, it depends which ones. I mean, I have books that I've never gone back to. They're like trophies of the times yeah. that I, I went through them. There's others that I'll pick up again when another set of interests brings me back mm. somewhere. Uh, but then there's a lot of books I have that are actually what one used to go to research libraries yeah. for. Like certainly in this area, in the universe of comics and art, I find that there's different ways of thinking about it that just make me always have to look up sometimes the same mm. book like uh, one month after I, I think okay I got everything I need that's gone then some other project comes up and I don't have like a totally retentive memory and when you get really down to very refined nuggets of things you're looking for it's not going to be online yeah what do you, what do you I mean I know this is a broad question but what are you generally looking for? Are you looking for... Well, like, look, like when I did this word list, thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm. All of a sudden, not only am I trying to find whatever I've gathered over the years because it was a trope of something I was interested in, but mm-hmm. now I had to reanalyze them, find references them to them in other books, find mm. artists that influenced them or were influenced by them, uh, find things that preceded them by several hundred years, like in the uh, way of like medieval woodblock prints mm-hmm. and things like that. And 
It turns out my interests have been relatively consistent. They're about, it's about <laughs> words and pictures and yeah. how they intertwine, and very often from the lower end rather than the higher end of the cultural spectrum. And so I've gathered all this stuff, and there's a certain point where, like, if you're looking it up online, it's great for certain things, and then you hit a wall. They, sure. they just don't have that more rarefied bits of yeah. stuff available. So um, I find myself using... There's certain books that I've worn to shreds. There's other things that are a problem because I have too many books between the two spaces that we have, and even some books now crowding Francoise out of her New Yorker office that'll have to be packed up and brought to their new God Help Us uh, home in Freedom Tower. Uh, sad. But anyway, that's the place I didn't intend yeah. to stray down. But I find that like very often I'm out there buying the same books a second or even a third time because after the second day of looking, yeah. I'm realizing that well, you know, my time isn't like uh, as precious as a uh, uh, Morgan Stanley investment mm-hmm. banker or something. But like after the second or third day, if a book is thirty or forty bucks, I'm I'm just going to find it again. And and certainly the internet's been very good at letting you find copies of old books. Yeah. I I have to imagine that there, are th- I mean, there there must be a lot of things in here that aren't in New York libraries, right? Probably true. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Libraries for sure. They didn't really collect in this area. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I, you know, I was just thinking. You know, as far as as far as sort of going back and and this this cross section between words and, and pictures and, and pictorial storytelling. I was uh, uh, I interviewed um, Karen Green a while ago at her mm. her office at Columbia. And, you know, she she was hadn't realized this until I was sitting in her her cubicle, and it's about half comics and then half medieval art uh-huh. and so I made the sort of goofy like you know it's just, so you came here to do this thing and yeah, I'm doing this thing and then you know she sat me down and explained to me why those two things maybe aren't so oh no they're apart. very connected yeah they really are I mean because a lot of the stuff that's printed in like medieval prints and stuff those weren't like the the high culture the high culture was in the churches mm. and in the palaces ultimately mm. uh and it's the kind of, you know, anonymous monks sitting there in their cells mm-hmm. illuminating the one copy of books before Gutenberg came around to change the game the way the Internet has yeah. again. Uh, or they're like uh, uh, just lower echelon uh, worker ants doing their woodcut uh, illuminations, you know. Now, here's a tangent worth taking. Okay. Okay. Because the stuff that I like, which wasn't considered necessarily the... Uh, crowning jewel mm. of uh, artistic creation mm-hmm. reaching toward God and whatever <laughs> uh, like that stuff so there's this monk and he's sitting in a cell and he's doing this thing and because, like set up to a joke no no <laughs> a rabbi and a monk walk in and then there's like these two hookers who um, no let me start that again um, so reading in the times maybe 15 years ago now uh, using those new um technology microscopes and x-ray machines to see mm. if something's forged or mm-hmm. to see previous layers of work uh there's some article about one of these books of hours that was made uh and the they use the um lens to go really 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 far in, in a way that could never have been done before mm. so we're talking about a picture that's about what like uh mm-hmm. six inches by five inches maybe but it's got it's a uh, got a castle in the background and there's some battle in the foreground and whatever. There's a lot happening There's in that a lot space. happening, but it's not as impacted as, say, S. Clay Wilson, but it's a lot for such a small area. And then when you zoom in, in the castle is a little banner on top and mm. it's no, it can't be wider than like an eighth of an inch or so. Mm. And on it, 
with a single hair brush was written for God's eyes only. So it got to be seen because of yeah. new technology, but this guy was just sort of like, you know. It's like a Bible verse on a grain of sand. Yeah, it was like just yeah. a little scrimshaw that this guy was making, you know. So you, um, I mean, this does, this does actually lead us to uh, to the to the tour that you're on. And, you know, it seems like you've become the the guy. You've become the guy to explain, you know, to, to explain to everyone why um, not not just comics. Why why the graphic novel is 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 hardly is hardly a new phenomenon. Yeah, I guess so. And, and especially like I still haven't gotten over ranting about the phrase. You know, it's not. It's not I'll say it, but I have interior air quotes around it whenever I use it because I know people get some idea of something if they hear. The I had that. I had that. I had this exact conversation with an editor who I I, I referred to something as a comic, and he said. You know, because you use graphic novel, and I was like, "Well, but Art Spiegelman says." <laughs> yeah, but like you know, I, I don't. Despite the rumors in some corners of the internet, I am not the uh, 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 the Jew in charge of all comics mm. media. <laughs> as, but, as Ted but to Wall me, that, that it. was like you know, if, if if Art Spiegelman says it's okay to call it comics, then I think it's okay to call. Oh, it okay, comics. good. Yeah. I mean, to me, it just seems like uh, the funniest version of this that I heard was like about. It seems like it was about five or six years ago. I'm doing a one-page thing for the Washington Post, and it's about uh, the anniversary of some ship that was turned away from Cuba that was filled mm. with refugees. And the editor is getting really jazzed about this, and he calls up and he's really excited. And he says, "This is so great! We've never had a graphic novel in our pages before." Mm. And I started laughing. I said, "You know, it's one page long." Yeah. He says, "Yeah, and we've never had one." And you never will. <laughs> and I said, "Well, yeah. you know." They tend to be longer, and if you think of these as graphic novels, there's a section right next door to yours that has graphic novels on a weekly basis in color, you know, in the Washington Post. Is, is, it, um, is, is it a problem of, of, of language? Is it semantics, or, or is, it, is it really just this idea that um, we have to give it some heft? They have problems, uh, uh, kind of take, take issue with, that, we, um, that we're almost insulting it by calling it comics. Yeah, this is a little bit like when I was growing up. The proper phrase to refer to somebody who's black shifted from mm. Negro to African-American to Afro-American mm. to, you know, or somewhere in there that was colored. And these were not necessarily the pejorative words. Mm. They were just the word at the sure. time. But there was a moment where uh, the dignity of the people affected by the word was trying, was, was in collision with the fact that whatever word you used soon got to be used as a pejorative inside people's mm. heads mm-hmm. right so like I think at a certain point in that Archie Bunker universe you would say yes he's an Afro-American yeah. you know <laughs> like with a sneer the, the, the so s- then people would spite, like yeah. so people would move to some other phrase but the stain kept catching up yeah. um, so that, therefore I, I thought this was a sucker's game changing the name yeah. I thought just change the material and then people encompass the new material under the word comics, mm-hmm. and I still do that, like because there was hefty work worth considering and reconsidering all through the history of comics while they were called comics. So uh, it's not like ambition and uh, artistic and literary heft, let's call it, only arrived with uh, I don't know where you want to start it, eighties, yeah. seventies, uh, um, but it was present throughout, and in fact. One whole category of book I didn't mention is I've got lots of books of comics and uh, pictures, and it's not even for reference. I just like looking at that stuff, and it was art that was made for reproduction, so I've got this museum here. Yeah. Um, 
So, so how, how long have you been collecting the, this material specifically for, for the tour? Well, the tour is the culmination of having found this stuff in the mm-hmm. 60s when I was a teenager. When, when Lindward stuff was first reprinted, I'd wander around bookstores because yeah. I'm kind of geeky and found uh, some one of these books, God's Man. Mm. And I was like, wow, I'd never seen anything like it. And I could feel a family resemblance to what I was aspiring toward. But I must must have been mid-60s, 64, 65. I'd have to yeah. look at the copyright date to know when it first came my way. And at that point, I just sort of had a flag up, like, I want to see more of this stuff. Uh, so I'd look for it in bookstores. And even then, they were quite, the Lynn Ward stuff was quite collectible. So it took mm. a while. But I'd, I'd stumble across things by that I'd never heard of, but I'd find it in the store, like uh, Otto Neukel's Destiny, if you ever saw that one. It's Mm-mm. probably the most beautiful for me in terms of its graphic style of all of them. And then I found Masriel, and that was really rich. And then as I began traveling to Europe in the 70s, I, it was easier to find certain things. Yeah. Uh, and then bit by bit, some of it would get reprinted here and there. So I, I managed... It's not a giant genre, but it, it has a few really key practitioners, and I was able to find their stuff. And it was important to me because it was a model of uh, something I was aspiring to, Mm. which wasn't so much wordlessness uh, as a kind of comics that didn't have to apologize for itself. Mm. You know, in the sense that it was fine when I wanted to do stuff inspired by Tijuana Bibles. I didn't have to (laughs) apologize for myself. It was just in the tradition. Uh, But when I wanted to do something that had like an emotional Mm. weight to it, there weren't too many models. How was Lynn Ward's stuff re- regarded at that point? I mean, I, I, you know, I know that he was really sort of influential around that time period. You know, my understanding is that... Um, that time Gin- period meaning the uh, 30s? The, well, you, no, I mean, even, uh, uh, you know, later, even closer oh, well, he when was, you came around okay, the 60s, well, the 50s. Well, he was, re- he was respected, but not... The Woodcut novels were pretty much unknown. I got to meet him a little bit before he mm-hmm. died. It was, and right before I did Prisoner on the Hell Plan. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that... I don't remember the year again, but... Uh, in late 70s? No, no, in the, that would have been in the 60s still. Okay. Well, maybe in the 70s, let me think. Well, early 70s. Uh, but at that time, he was a... Ast- I was the youngest person in the room by about three mm-hmm. generations. Like uh, This was a, an art showing? It was an art show in Binghamton, New York, at a frame shop. Uh and I just saw his name, and I went, I'm going there, you know. Uh, you, you, were you anywhere in the vicinity of Binghamton? Was yeah, that's how I knew that it okay. was happening. I was just like, at that point, yeah. let's see, this must have been 71 or 72, mm-hmm. because I was just careening from having been in a rather insane commune that had exploded. <laughs> and I just crawled out of New York City to, like, convalesce in my old uh, yeah. college town. Um, and then there's a weekly newspaper that says that this gallery is going to, this mm. little frame shop gallery is going to have Lynn Ward's work. Yeah in it and the artist would be present turns out he was friends of the people who had the frame shop so they had the show they were like his woodcut graphic art not his woodcut novels not his commercial illustration but the woodcuts he Mm -hmm. made and they were interesting but like I was really interested in meeting him and talking to him about the woodcut novels specifically and he was just astonished A that I was there at all because like (laughs) I said I was way too young for this sort of thing uh, being whatever like uh early 20s mm-hmm. um, and also knowing knowing these books because at that point they were more or less out of print even the one that I found in the 60s it yeah. wasn't like a the big deal it had been like when it first came out it really was a big deal in 1930 mm. um, and he was known, if anything, probably for his children's book illustrations and for his book illustrations for like these kind of heritage editions that would be 
higher class reprints of the mm. classics with uh, like there's a Frankenstein one of his okay. that's very pricey yeah. still yeah. Uh, uh, but he did a lot I don't remember Jane Eyre I think was another one that he did so he's more Graphic, known for those just il- il- illustrations illustrations in sometimes in woodcut okay. and sometimes in kind of litho crayon technique but he also did gouache painting and has several children's books mm-hmm. that uh, is very highly regarded as a children's book illustrator so it was more that than the than this particular thing. Hmm. Um, but you but you you mentioned it. He was he was he was surprised. He was surprised and very friendly about yeah. it. You know, uh, at some point, I ended up writing this in like the the thing that catalyzed Wordless more recently. You know, like closer to the inception date yeah. was that uh, Library of America decided now that graphic novels were really something <laughs> that they would have their first. Uh, picture volumes in the Library of America and they so chose this happened within the last couple of years two years yeah really? three four yeah. years ago if you, let's see is one of them, yeah here uh, could you hold my microphone I'll sure. be right back yeah uh, like here's the Library of America books with oh. okay so here are the Library of America editions yeah. uh, uh, of all six of his woodcut edited novels edited by Eric um, but edited is a little bit strong. Like mm-hmm. they did the heavy lifting. I wrote yeah. the essay and had some kibitzing. They're really nice, and they're the, yeah. they're printed from the original woodcut, so they aren't like degenerate editions. And they they handle it properly by printing it only on one side of a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're within ninety eight to one hundred percent of the original size, depending on the book. I'm I'm amazed that um, so, so this is what one two three four five six books collected yeah. here. Um, still seems like a lot of text for these 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 you know graphic. No, where? Oh, just, uh, it, they're they're very just very thick volumes. Oh, the thick volumes. They're printed on one side of a page, and yeah. there's an apparatus like there's a like the thing I could never have done that the Library of America did was a really scrupulous chronology of his life. It mm-hmm. functions like a biography in the form of a chronological timeline. Then there's the essay in the front, and uh, a couple of his essays are there to fill it out. But it's pretty much his woodcut work, for uh, his narrative woodcut work in one place. And and these are, I mean, these are the first time that these have been reprinted in in some time? I think so. I mean, some of them may have come and gone in Dover. I don't know what happened when. But this is the first definitive gathering of these things. And some of the books have pretty much never existed in any kind of yeah. mass form like they're just things that he did he had his own press for a while mm. uh, in the height of the depression he had made money off of uh, God's Man which was really mm-hmm. a success just, yeah. and so he used that to found a left wing press because uh, he had a lot of writer friends he did a picture biography of John Reed with one of the authors from the masses and his drawings as a young adult story of John Reed for example My- I, I I had uh, had read a story. I think there might even be a story in the uh, the press release about the tour. But um, I guess getting back to the story of you of you meeting him, that um, I think you had attempted to talk comics with him. And he- oh yes, that's exactly what's that's how we got to this particular loop. Mm-hmm. Because in this thing, I mentioned meeting him yeah. and asking him about. So what comics did you like when you were a kid? <laughs> and he looked at that was the first time he looked at me like yeah. Who let this kid in yeah. here? You know, he said, "Oh no, no, I never read comics. My father was a, a Protestant missionary, uh, you know, like a, re- a left wing uh, huh. uh, uh, 
preacher or whatever. Whatever. I don't know the right words for this right now because I'm tired. But uh, progressive he was, He's a progressive yeah. Christian who'd work in the uh, uh, ghettos and um, deal with kids who had mm-hmm. diseases and uh, try to organize workers and things like that. And uh, but he, he definitely was had a religious disposition and therefore would never let uh, his kid read something like the Sunday Funnies. <laughs> Sunday was the day to read uh, the good book. Yeah. Um, so basically what Lind Ward was weaned on was not Steve Ditko or Harvey Kurtzman, depending on one's generational and other disposition. Mm. Uh, it was more like uh, um, Doré's Bible illustrations. That's what he was really seeing. Is there a, 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 a direct lineage between this and and I mean so so this is uh, you, you said twenties thirties a lot of these things mm-hmm. were um, is there a direct connection between these 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 graphic stories and and comics as far as you can tell or was direct, it well I think for later? some no no for some people yeah. there, it depends on which artist we're talking mm-hmm. about uh, for Lind Ward definitely not and when I pushed him further I said but. Didn't you ever see any later? Yeah. Which ones did you like? And he was going, well, I guess Prince Valiant was mm. okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the most like book illustration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there were other artists who, if not comics, they were cartoonists. Like this guy yeah. who did Destiny was definitely also a cartoonist in the uh, humor and satire magazines of the 20s and 30s in Paris and in Germany. Uh, Franz Masriel was definitely, uh, had his roots in, in some kind of newspaper art also, as well as... Uh, getting interested in woodcuts uh, primarily through um, uh, something that was just beginning to happen, like a woodcut revival Mm. in Germany, which um, uh, probably has something to do with Japanese woodcuts even, uh, but also with the medieval German books. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was that. But there also was, he was a political cartoonist in the papers, and some of these things have a lot of kind of, uh, they ain't Tijuana Bibles, but they get hottish. You know, it, it it is sort of fascinating though how how um, how quickly it seems to at least sort of in, in public perception have gone from have gone from I guess relatively high art to low art with the introduction of text to that. Oh, well, that's core to the, the my that's yeah. core to my thesis, and it's it's like uh, it started out as probably a lower art, you know, in mm-hmm. America, right? Like these comics were not considered like the turn of the century, Yellow Kid, and beyond. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of the riffraff of art. It wasn't like, but you, but you know, you've got you've got Dickens and oh, Thackeray illustrated and you've books, got illustri- yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you know, those are perfectly acceptable. Yeah, although when they were coming out, they were just popular culture. Yeah. They weren't coming out as like, here's another tome from uh, uh, James Coetzee or yeah. by whoever, yeah. you know, uh, uh, or here's James Joyce's latest chapter. That sure. wasn't stuff people were waiting on yeah. the docks for uh, in the same way. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, it was part of the popular culture and those things fed into each other, the cartoonists and illustrators and back and forth. But this has a lot to do with the rise of literacy and mm. a change in perception of where comics sat in the culture. Yeah, but it, but it, but but I, I you know I guess I guess it is it is interesting that you know I, I you know concurrent to that the again the introduction of text is almost what makes it a lower art is the juxtaposition between Absolutely. the two, right? You gotta come, even though it's not gonna be in New York. <laughs> but like I've got like exhibit A, B and C yeah. that really shows something yeah. kind of electrifying. Yeah. In, in the way this kind of you've cracked in the, the code. shift. Yeah, I think I found like the the specific things that turned mm-hmm. perception. Well we've well we've got, you know, we've got news newspaper comics. It sort of makes sense why that's looked at as being a little bit lower. I mean these are very very 
um, these, these are disposable products in, in, in during the time period, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. This is not exactly on this topic, but it's right next yeah. door, which is in Europe, especially in France, this was never as big a gulf. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like uh, Picasso worked for a humor magazine called The Four Cats. Uh, uh, Toulouse-Lautrec mm. was working not only doing signage for whorehouses, basically, <laughs> uh, but making making things where you'd see the connection, and yet it's still he was still part of the modernist current. You yeah. know, uh, Juan Gris was uh, a, a second generation Cubist mm. who also uh, was doing cartoons for uh, La Sierra Burr and other cartoon magazines at the beginning of the century. Kupka, a lot of people who are respected as painters, were also working mostly as single panel cartoonists, but often with the aim of getting a laugh, not not uh, political cartoons per se. Um, and there wasn't that kind of uh, uh, cordon sanitaire yeah. between one thing and the other, yeah. you know? Uh, so America, it's specific. And, mm. and, 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 you know, like by the time you get to the 20s and 30s, you've got people like George Gross mm-hmm. and... Uh, He's really just like they're coming at it as artists, but they're also making stuff that any cartoonist will recognize as kin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, you do, and you do speak a little bit um, about Wortham in in the piece, but I guess that's you know that's several decades later. So I don't mm. know if that how how much of a but shift he's not, in public perception. Well, it's a shift in the perception of somebody who has shifted perceptions mm. because uh, you know like uh, Wortham was brought up with that high German tradition. He was mm-hmm. br- educated in Germany as a young man. He must have been born in... Gee, I wish I had that at my fingertips, but I've got the reference books I haven't thrown away that could tell me. Uh, <laughs> that so, is something you can find in Wikipedia. Yeah, or- <laughs> I'm sure it is. But, uh, um, you know, he must have been in, probably in his 50s by then. Yeah. Right? So he was growing up with the high art when it was being infected by popular culture in Germany, but it was still... There, there was a very clear high-low distinction, and uh, and he bought into it. So Is, is this... And this is still... I, I mean, I guess what fascinates me is that, you know, after after all these years and, um, what, 25... I guess 25-plus years since, since, since Maus, um, th- this is still a topic that really interests you, is public perception of, of high art, low art. Well, because it's still affecting things. Now yeah. it's like everybody just wants to climb onto the low art bandwagon and get as far away from high art as possible. Mm-hmm. Now that it's seen as an extension of the stock market more than mm. but, anything but, else. But, you know, obviously... Well, it, it, it shaped years. me. It yeah. shaped me. And it's still it's still going on. Like, I'm seeing the way comics are entering into the culture and yeah. very interested in seeing that happen. Uh, but there there's still a kind of... Uh, membrane that that is resistant to certain things and includes that uh thing that started breaking down probably in the early 60s of the the prohibition against putting words and pictures together mm-hmm. before that you just have a piece of a newspaper pasted onto a cubist uh, collage or something uh but it's in the 60s that you really began to have people like mixing language and pictures together one way or another even if even in the lame Lichtenstein manner I was gonna ask you yeah I, you Nobody is actually uh, involved in comics. Seems to be a big proponent of what of what he did. No, there are more interesting pop artists, including yeah. like you know when when Warhol did his Dick Tracy. That still seemed pretty interesting to me. It's just like I always found uh, the Lichtenstein thing vaguely condescending yeah. and insulting. You yeah. know, it was like 
like look at this silly thing that we're putting on the wall. Yeah, well, it was worse than that. I'll I'll take a soundbite from one of the comics lectures that I give when it's not this talk. Sure. But uh, but basically, Lichtenstein and and the pop artists in general were trying to find a way out of the cul-de-sac of the 1950s mm-hmm. abstract expressionist moment because people like to draw things. Yeah. You know, they like to draw. They don't start. Well, maybe they do start by making a crayon scrawl or a shit scrawl if they're babies on a wall. They think they're doing something. They're doing something. But, like, there is an impulse to want to record something with uh, your hand based on seeing something or having an idea, picture of something. There's a reward in the acknowledgement that what you have drawn is has an analog in the real world when mom comes along and sees that it's a dog. Yeah, you get rewarded for that. And I've seen, like, parents with their little kids in front of a Picasso or whatever and they'll say can you see the cow mm-hmm. you know it's like oh yeah there's a cow yeah. um, it's like a where's Waldo yeah so yeah. it's like oh it, it's it's a something as well as a uh, you know a, a, a pun between being a uh, just uh, subdividing a rectangle of canvas so that it does it's activate it's hard to explain to a three year old you know it's well, <laughs> abstract yeah. impressionism cows are a lot easier <laughs> than a cow um, so there's that aspect to it <laughs> <laughs> but in, <clears throat> if you were a serious artist in the Late 50s, and you wanted to do something representational, you were kind of laughed out of the club. Mm. Just go go join Lindward and the other louts who are (laughs) illustrators, you know? A low thing to be. Uh, And pop art was trying to find a way around that issue, and it did it by saying, no, no, we're not drawing anything. We're just making pictures of pictures of something. Yeah. So the Lichtenstein stuff, it's not, no, no, it's not a, a, a woman. It's a drawing about the fact that somebody drew a woman with tears in her eyes. And then what it was specifically was to like make some point about high-low in which, ah, yes, these vulgarians, instead of a mark like George Gross's or Rembrandt's marks, well, let's leave George Gross out of it. He's a problem. But let's say Rembrandt's marks. These are like industrial uh, soulless marks, these thick mm-hmm. brush lines. And instead of uh, painterly skin that you'd love to touch like the kind that uh, Rubens painted. These are just red dots. So it was a way of talking about, somehow talking about the soullessness of commercial culture and uh, the inability of the masses to understand an abstraction, even though look how well my uh, rectangle is composed, yeah. Lichtenstein might say, even though they're often very close to the Kirby's he swiped. <laughs> uh, but but be that Not as, as it may... But be, yeah, be that as it may, like it was changing the scale, changing the context, and then being able to to say this isn't what it comes from. It's been transformed the same way that urinal that Duchamp once put up yep. on a wall got transformed. And so I says in response, he did no more for comics than Warhol did for soup. <laughs> you know, it's just that. Uh, on the other hand, there were really interesting pop artists like the Chicago School that were giving comics their due and trying to move toward the distortions that uh, a Chester Gould could bring to comics, for example. So, so we, we, before we fired up the, um, the, the microphone, yeah, uh, <laughs> you, were, you were doing an, another interview, and I know that you've got sort of a, a battery tonight as you're about to head out on this tour. Um, and, and I can imagine it gets a little tired. Uh, you get a little tired, certainly, speaking of the, the same things over and over again. But you do... Um, you are very interested in, in 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 I guess comics as 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 presentation. You know, in, as far as mixing a um, this sort of solitary thing to create and and to consume into this live event, and this is something that I'm seeing um, 
I want to say more and more as they get more more and more popular. I mean, you know, uh, Bob Sikoriak has the Mm -hmm. carousel, which is Mm -hmm. fantastic. And it's really, it's fascinating to watch. uh, 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 One of my favorite things ever that I've seen was I I saw one of Ben Ketcher's um, musical. Mm. uh, I I, I don't even know if he has a word for for what he makes, but um, it's it's fascinating to see different artists try to interpret interpret this into into a stage presentation. Mm. Well, part of it is, you know, it's very lonely work sitting yeah. in the studio all the time. So if you get to, like, I'm excited. I get to, tr- like, do this thing that, like, I should have done in my 20s, which is travel with a mm-hmm. band and never did. <laughs> so here, uh, there's that. Um, s- but also there's, for me, it really grew out of lecturing and wanting to see if I could give shape to a lecture and make it into mm. an actual thing. Something as- sort of independent of comics, not independent of, but like, you know, like I've lectured on comics for 25 yeah. years. I don't know how long, yeah. forever, uh, in universities and in classes and and so on. And I've gotten that down fairly well. And mm. it allows me to riff and uh, improvise. And uh, now thanks to PowerPoint presenter tools, I don't have to go in order so I can choose a slide. It reminds me of something. I can find mm. it from later in the presentation and bring it out and there's this kind of sync event magic so it always began to feel somewhat performative over the mm-hmm. years or over the years it became somewhat performative but i would say that uh this was like wanting to up the ante and make mm. something that felt like oh it's a performance it just doesn't follow all the rules of what you'd associate with that what are what are what are the uh, what are the? I mean, obviously, the music is. I think the big distinction. Well, no, with performance, you'd expect music. Um, oh, I thought you meant as far as as oh. far as going to see comics. No, no, I would just say that, like, as a as a performance, it has mm. other aspects that include. Uh, there's a division that I don't quite recognize. For example, that Francoise ran up against to like a stone wall when she started doing her tune books. Mm-hmm. Uh, if something is entertaining, it's not supposed to be educational, and if it's educational, it's not supposed mm. to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. Like uh, since Francoise very specifically was starting tune books to have leveled readers to nurse kids into that specific moment where they've decoded the alphabet. Now they have to learn to read. And so she did level one, level two, level three, lexiled so that it would be passed by uh, uh, Bank Street books or something, you know, and then finding that that was a problem. She just presented these as picture books. They'd be embraced as, oh, look, Granny's going to get the kids something uh, the kid will enjoy. It's such a silly thing because we all learn to to read reading comics, right? It's, yes. I mean, it makes you know she's she's so doing she it in a very deliberate way. She's doing it in a very deliberate way. But the other thing she was doing is trying to not do it the way they like. Easy readers yeah. are probably the lowest form of literature, way mm-hmm. lower if we're going to keep high and low mm-hmm. than anything comics ever did, even mm-hmm. at their most lurid, because uh, they're made by people who are kind of sleepwalking through it it's yeah. like here's your word list here's a, a kid who's out of high school who barely learned to control a pen uh, and here's somebody in the office who can rewrite Sleeping Beauty with this word list it's without like a thinking fridge magnet it. sort of puzzle yeah and and it's not done by <laughs> yeah. with any energy or, or interest because uh the, the higher end of this is the picture book the glorious uh, Maurice Sendak stuff mm. you know because there it's uh, you can feel it. Oh, it's not trying to be educational, although sometimes it actually is. Yeah. 
very much so. It's reading. It's educational. Yeah. Then, you know, so there's that. But yeah. even within that world of reading, there's like this is the stuff you yeah. read because it's fun to sit down with the kid and have him on your lap. This is the one where the kid's supposed to be learning to read the very earliest. This is books. the one the kid doesn't doesn't want to read. You know, it's yeah, right. Here's work. the castor oil. Yeah. And the things, the goal here, and part of the economic reason is just easy readers are so specific that you grow out of them in quotes after mm. about four months, and you go yeah. to the next level of reader. Uh, and Francoise's uh, books were such that, okay, you can read this if you're at this stage of development, you can read the other one at another stage of development, but the one you read first, you're still going to want to have. It's not like she invented that, like some of the best Dr. Seuss yeah. stuff was done the same way. You know, like Go Dog Go is entertaining to me when I was reading it to my kids as well as for the kid who likes the fact that it only has like 25 words in it or something. And nobody, nobody has those lifelong fond memories for the, for the easy reader books. No, you can't. They were done like just as like, okay, let's get this thing over with. You've yeah. got to learn it so you can read books first with pictures and then let's get rid of those training wheels and get you reading that gray page after gray page of type. Uh, but I never saw that distinction as, as m that meaningful. Mm -hmm. So the fact is that I think that this is a kind of delirious presentation, <laughs> but it also ends up having you chew on a lot of things afterwards that are beyond the, uh, the norms of like, oh, God, this was as escapist as going to some comedy club mm. or whatever, you know? So, so do you, you know? A are bad you, example. <laughs> well, well the, the, as, as far as the, uh, the feedback that you get a after the show when, when people come out and say, I was surprised that it was this. Is more, uh, you know, is it more people surprised that they learned something? Is it more people surprised that they were generally entertained? I, I'm not sure, but I know they got like. I mean, I ain't bragging. I'm just reporting. <laughs> it got standing ovations yeah. in almost every place it was yeah. in. So they were just like into it. Whatever yeah. it was, they were into it. And you know, everybody likes getting something that's not like what they had before. If they don't, if they're not scared of it. You know, if it's not like, uh, this isn't like anything I would go to, uh, uh, I'm not going to go. Uh, but once it's actually happening, if it's like um, on some level moving and funny and got things you never thought about yeah. before, that's a good thing. Are, I mean, how, how clearly delineated are, are the different segments? I mean, is it is this this is the lecture period? No, no, it keeps the... weaving back and okay. forth because part of it was to create a feeling of disorientation. <laughs> So it moves back and forth. Between why, why, why are you trying to disorient people? Because that way people will be able to enter more into the material. Yeah. They, they don't keep their preconceptions in place. To, okay, to sort of take, to almost take them out of the fact that they're sitting there and Well, they're sitting there. It. They're listening to a live performance created specifically around these pieces. Because even though I mentioned that, like, Philip comes at this from being... Uh, uh, especially interested in silent film music. Yeah. Uh, did I tell you that, or was that to the guy? Yeah, we actually haven't spoken about Philip. Oh, yet, so okay. he, he's the uh, he's right, the band leader. You're blurring together with the thing <laughs> I was talking about five minutes before you set up your mic. Uh, so he's a composer and a uh, saxophonist yeah. and uh, uh, a band leader. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that he's really focused on among just liking to perform is uh, silent film music, like writing new scores for old films. Mm -hmm. He loves silent movies. And that's how I got to be aware of his stuff, actually. Is it one of these sort of, you go to Bryant Park and see... Yeah, exactly. I was in Prospect Park yeah. with my kids when they were really young, and I thought every young child should see Lon Chaney's The Unknown. If you know the plot, mm -hmm. you'll realize that I'm lucky I wasn't dragged off by social workers <laughs> and the kids separated from me. Uh, but he was doing the sound. I, I didn't know. I just knew there'd be some accompaniment. Yeah. I really loved what was done there. Uh, and so we ended up meeting and uh, working on something that we never brought to fruition called Drawn to Death, a three-panel opera, which mm -hmm. was uh, 
another kind of hybrid, but done before projections were as easy to do as they are in the 21st century. Uh, and um, and now he's getting his doctorate in uh, in silent film music, and he's done a lot of these things. And this was much harder because it has to be, as he says, trapped much more finely than you have to do in a, a silent film score. Mm. Um, what is what is he scoring exactly? What, well, what is what is he? I mean, he's 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 playing he's, along to the readings. He's well, there's readings, and then there's a certain point where I shut up finally, okay. <laughs> so that you can get a wordless book, or at least mm. some of it, before I come back on and start yakking again. So when that's happening, uh, he's scoring to the quick time that we made, uh, and had to sometimes alter a bit, or sometimes he had to write towards something he didn't expect he was going to have to do, but managed it that way. Uh, but it's, but it's. It's kind of like the goal with that part of it was to do something that wasn't an animatic exactly, mm. but that yeah. would like let you see the stuff in time because the whole glory of these books ultimately is you go at your own pace and when you're ready, you turn the page, you go back if you didn't get something. Here I have to make sure you get it so we can keep moving forward and the music has a part in that as well. And, and you know, much the same way that you couldn't, um, say, colorize a film um, you're you're not really keeping true to the source material if you're if you're if you're animating it versus keeping it. Yeah, so it's, as it was a complicated move, and I just figured it was like a an accelerated first exposure. Mm. You know, so I I have the Assuming caveats. That most of these people in the audience are seeing this for the first time. Yeah, and if they've seen it before, then it's like a specific reading of it, and then it becomes yeah. the pleasures of, that that can offer. Uh, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. There's something about revisiting something, having it done in a group sure. and whatever. Like going to see the movie in Prospect Park. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's something about uh, this that allows you to get the narrative aspect faster than would happen if mm. you were doing it on your own. Because there's ways you can kind of take a, a detail in a picture and make sure yeah. people have seen it rather than have to go back and find it, let's say. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, this is sort of, uh, again, this is the interesting thing is um, I, I would think on some very basic level that if you're looking at, at, a, at a comics page and you've got to deal with the, the, the order of the panels and you've got, um, you know, images and words, which um, on a very basic level it almost seem like these, these two conflicting things that you've got to use different sides of your brain to interpret, but it's and harder. This, it's, yeah, this is harder and yeah. easier at the same time because they're mostly, except for, I do show some of the work that's multi-panel that's part yeah. of the comics tradition uh, that's silent as well, some of my own in fact uh, as well. But these are at least that much easier because they're boxes, sometimes all mm-hmm. the same size, sometimes shifting depending on the scene, depending on the artist and what the which way they were working um but it's also harder because you know when you're doing stuff in pantomime it gets really hard if you've ever tried to play a real kind of olympic level version of charades yeah it gets hard unless you're doing sounds like contort uh um and try to like get somebody to know what you're thinking here like you've got to get certain aspects of the picture that have narrative qualities in order to keep moving through the story without getting lost and i wanted to make it when i talked about getting people disoriented part of it is it's okay to get lost i'll catch you up just go with it because sometimes the music is really kind of uh rather rich and pulls you along somewhere um although he's very aware of what's happening each frame that we're showing like flips uh somebody I could identify with because I also, as you know from having seen my stuff over a number of years, I tend to be sort of a stylistic switch hitter, mm-hmm. like each project has its own way it should sure. look. So we're going through a lot of different eras of music and different uh, different kinds. It's not one sauce fits all. Yeah. 
How how closely did you work with him um, as, as far as pretty composing close. specific pieces? Pretty on all, pretty close. Like man, if it wasn't for Skype, I don't know how we would have done this because he's half a planet away. Yeah, it, it's it's. It, it's funny. It's just it's funny, sort of like know, you know, knowing knowing what I know about you that it, that it is the technology that's made all of this possible. Absolutely. Like when I tried working with Philip the first time, it had to do with projections and yeah. stuff as well. But you know, the first time I tried to do something was before I met Philip. It was also on Drawn to Death before I started working with him. And the first performance of any kind had to be done with the most expensive projector, high lumen projector possible that had a computer technician who had to translate everything into algorithms and mm. didn't understand what I was asking of him. It was before you could do this on a, a laptop, basically. And uh, within eight minutes of the performance, the machine just like had a, p- a plume of smoke coming out of it, and it died. So we just weren't able to really do it at Harvard. man could be Harvard. defeat machine. Yeah, exactly. Uh. So th- it moved fast, but at that time it was like really not an easy uh, thing to manifest. Uh, and And actually, that grew out of... What led to ultimately even this event, you mentioned the Ben Catcher stuff, Mm -hmm. it grew out of me being invited to do a libretto for a group called Bang on a Can. Mm -hmm. And uh, they wanted just the libretto. I thought they just wanted sets. When I finally understood what they wanted, I said, well, can I make drawings? I said, well, sure. And then all of a sudden I was much more interested in the the graphic elements than in figuring out the libretto uh, because I had to go to operas because this was a vest pocket avant-garde opera. And I went to operas because that was never a category for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's such a thing as high art, but I didn't go there readily, you know. Uh, and so when I sat in the opera, I was going, this is so cool at the New York City Opera that have the uh, super titles yeah. literally above uh, going by on top of the stage. When you put those in balloons and you got something, <laughs> you know. Well, that's 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 funny. And, and, and this will bring us around to, I, I think, what I guess is a sort of a logical last question. But again, we're talking about how technology sort of made all this possible and when you really think about it when you take when you sort of remove the the live element when you remove the audience people sitting there watching it um what you've got in this what you what have you got in you know the sense uh ben ben's live performances or uh what what uh, arsa koryak is doing you've got a live I hate to use this term; it's almost as 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 offensive as graphic novel. But you've got a live motion comic, which is this sort of—I know—even worse. So yeah, I just literally shuddered. Yeah, which which, but I but but I think I don't know. I, I think it's just is something that's been done really poorly. It's it's been, it's something that people have trying trying to sort of force these different things together. But does it make sense that at some point down the road, given how people are consuming comics now, given how popular comics are now, that there might be a, a magic bullet. There might be a way to make these things live in harmony. Well, harmony is exactly what it's living in on, on stage with this stuff, I guess, or dissonance. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I think these are all reactions to the f- fact that uh, we're living on screen more and more yeah. and more and things that yank you out of that, whether it be a book where you can actually concentrate on something mm-hmm. or communing with other people, even though you can watch almost anything by torrenting it. Um, people still are going to the movies when they can afford it, you know? And it's partially just like being in a a world with other people. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to get out of the studio and hang with other people and talk to other people, as well as just like having to write emails uh, and and then go back to consuming things on a screen. It's part of the reaction against where 
the technology is dragging us, mm-hmm. you know? So that's part of it. And part of it with the comics thing is like one more way that can happen, I suppose. Like uh, things that are analogous to comics happening in performance is is part of this. I got interested in what would happen when you in the in the Drawn to Death project when you're mixing live people with comics uh, tropes. Or I did it. I, did you see that? At, at least there was a video of it at the Jewish Museum's incar- incarnation of the comics exhibit. There was something of the thing I did with Palabolus. I haven't. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. That was all taking a lot of the ideas I couldn't realize when working on Drawn to Death. 10 years yeah. later but when Palabalus asked me to work with them that became interesting and it worked just fine mm-hmm. having people move from panel to panel literally uh, mm-hmm. with balloons above their head with drawings interacting with people uh, in a more high tech uh, manner but more yeah. low tech than having whatever it was Gene Kelly dance with Tom and Jerry or something uh, but but nevertheless there was different like uh, dialogue between things that are usually still and things that are were moving like dancers. But but I guess that but the, again that's getting into sort of the conceptual. Um, this is a thing we could do. This is a thing in mu- a museum versus this is a, uh, a thing that we're making a, a lot of for a lot of people to. Well, you're talking about what comics on on your phone? Yeah, or uh, again, this like weird weird thing that is that is motion comics, or you know, of, of taking people taking people through a comic in the way that you are in the live setting. Mm. Yeah, well, the stuff that takes you back to the screen and moves, it's a, I'm just confused by it. I know people are beginning to work with it in interesting yeah. ways, probably, and also in some dreadful ways from what <laughs> I've seen. But it is true that like that's going to be happening more and more. Yeah. Uh, right now, I think the way we started the conversation, talking about how uh, anything you've got that's digital is going to disappear very mm. soon, mm-hmm. uh, I think of this stuff as more fragile and uh, and and ephemeral than newsprint. The yeah. stuff they're working in is not those technologies. The code that l- allows you to make that particular uh, hybrid event on a screen is going to be just Aramaic in a few weeks. Uh, so there's something nice and stable about. Yeah. Paper the paper comics um i'm just beginning to see it happen now what becomes an issue is like well if you can add sound effects you can have the whole thing be spoken you don't need any balloons and if you can have things move they have this it's called animated cartoons and as soon as you move back toward that other zone it's complicated to negotiate where it's really appropriate to Mm -hmm. make something that uses language that i recognize as comics language and for me you know I'm just so interested in what happens when you put lots of boxes together. It's why it took me a little bit of stretch to like learn what these woodcut novels were really doing, for example, because I like seeing eight boxes at once. Yeah. You know, maybe ultimately the downfall, though, is is these very solid distinctions that we have between these mediums. I mean, there's no reason to. Yes, I mean, that's not true. dip your toes in as many as possible. Whatever's in so far as as they're actually suitable for what you exactly want to make. like. You find yeah. what you need to be able to get made yeah. what you want to have made. And I got really interested in in drawn to death and what happened between three uh, D and two D stuff. Uh, here, I'm really interested in something that grew out of the lectures, which is communicative. And like, uh, I got to say, a lot of what I've been trying, even in the comics, it's like I never was that excited about becoming like a gallery artist i was afraid of even going there when i found my Mm. my more arcane underground comics Mm -hmm. if i could find a gallery it might fit better in that world but i didn't want to be in that world i wanted to Mm -hmm. be making 
mass-produced objects, even if it was small mass. Uh, and and now, like, okay, those distinctions are breaking down. Yeah. This is a good thing. And uh, I'm still, though, interested in the aspect of actually communicating something. And when I talk to some of the older painters and avant-garde mm. filmmakers that I know, the word communication is a dirty word. Yeah. Communicating in, in this sense being... Uh, communicating to as many people as possible well and also very specifically like when i was i don't know if it still exists there used to be a magazine called communication arts <laughs> and it was a madman advertising mm-hmm. magazine so communicating was yep. really like uh, uh the propaganda arts yep. you know so like that was the opposite of what they meant now i, I just want to make sure that like what i mean is something that i can communicate to yep. somebody else and they can understand it feel it think it uh and so this is just more an extension of that than of using this as an express, expression unto itself. That is, that, that is the, the silly thing, and I think in a lot of cases the downfall of, um, of high art is are, are things that are made for to, to not be understood by by the masses. You know, things to, to in a lot of cases just be to, to made to be understood by the intellectuals. Yeah, and I think that Chris Ware said it well when we were talking once. He said, like, at a certain point, like when he was in art school at the Chicago Art Institute, he thought art was a historical term and it referred to stuff that was done way before he yeah. was of age. Like, there was something called art, but it stopped. Now there's this <laughs> they other don't thing. They art anymore. Yeah, now, now they do something that's like invasion of the body snatchers. Something took over the word yeah. and inhabits it, but it's a whole other thing. And it, I don't even know if it has to do with being intellectual or whatever. It has to do with money and status and... Yeah. Uh, maybe, and they're probably real artists struggling around somewhere, and some of them may hit it somehow. But it's not—it's not what I associate with what I see when I wander around a lot of galleries. There you have it, Art Spiegelman, legendary cartoonist. Um, always really, really excited to talk to Art, and you know, not just because he's—he's he's, uh, incredibly smart and has a lot of super interesting things to say about comics and culture and all these other things. Uh, but I, I'm just always really excited to go uh, visit his space. Um, so we talked about this at, at the top of the the conversation a little bit, but he's—he's he's got this this office that's basically a—it's uh, pretty much a private library. Uh, I interviewed him maybe three or four years ago for Heat Magazine in the same space. I was pretty impressed then, and he only seems to have more books now. And, and as uh, you know, as we mentioned during the conversation, um, he's running out of space there and, and elsewhere. Um, uh, actually, but the last time I saw Art was, um, I think, about two years ago. I randomly ran into him on the streets of, uh, of Cologne, Germany, and he invited me to a talk that he was giving. Uh, easily easily one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my life because, you know, not only was this American cartoonist up there, um, you know, giving a talk about a, a Holocaust comic that, that uh, he'd been made very famous for, but um, so this was a, a few years after the, uh, the the big kerfuffle around the Muhammad cartoons and Ahmadinejad had uh, started a contest basically for uh, the, the best Holocaust and Al cartoons and, and Art being art had, had entered that contest, so it's just super surreal to watch him in front of this crowd of, uh, of German art enthusiasts laughing at, at, at Art's admittedly very funny Holocaust Nail cartoons. But, um, you know, that's, that's the sort of uh, intrigue and excitement that you get when you go see an Art Spiegelman live show. So he's, he's touring around uh, the country right now for, for, this, for this, uh, this wordless event that he has that's actually... Um, I think probably the only reason why he agreed to do the, the, this uh, this dinky little podcast, but 
you know what i i absolutely i will take it so yeah you should definitely go check that out it's a very interesting conversation about comics and right brain and left brain and, and history of these these wordless novels these the, these woodcuts that have been around for for years and years and how that inter, intersects with with comics um i know we talked about this a little bit during the conversation but you know i figure i should give it a little plug if you do have the chance to go see it um the part that I find super fascinating is this idea of taking, um, you know, like they do, like you'll go, you'll go, I assume they have this in a lot of major cities, but they have it here in New York. You'll go to like Bryant Park and you'll go see a silent film and they'll do like a live score and it, it really, really kind of impacts your, your relationship to that, to, to the movie. I mean, you know, especially a, a movie that's, um, that's, that's that old, it kind of brings you back into the moment. So it'd be, uh, super interesting to, to see somebody do that with, with a live jazz band and comics as well. So you, you will have the opportunity to do that in the very near future if you go check out the Wordless Tour. So thank you so much to Art for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Jeff for, for helping set that one up. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the podcast together. Thanks to, to the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Thanks to you, the listener, for listening to the show. I uh, hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, go rate us over on iTunes. Um, you can also follow us on Tumblr. It's riylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first, fastest, that's like the main vein to the show. You'll get that before you get it anywhere else over on the Tumblr. If you have any feedback, you can send us an email. It's riylcast.tumblr.com. Um, that's about all the plugs I've got. So we, we I, I've on my I think fourth or fifth interview of the last two weeks I got one more tomorrow so excited to bring all of these to you lots of really exciting episodes coming up so stick around next week and we will be back with another episode of RIYL 